Welcome to the Lady Lawyer League podcast. They're a league of lady lawyers in an all-female law firm in Omaha, Nebraska called Hightower Ref Law. On this podcast, you'll hear stories of what it's like to be a lady lawyer and an entrepreneur. Now it's time to talk about the law, share real-life stories about representing clients, and discuss the current events of the week. It's the Lady Lawyer League podcast with Susan Ref and Tracy Hightower Henny. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about what happens after the decree is entered and all the estate planning things that we need to do. So it's not yet over, right, when the decree is entered. Right. It's not over till it's over. Yeah. And then it's never really over. (laughs) So here with me is Tasha Haviken, one of our attorneys in our office who does a lot of our estate planning. Yes. The resident tree killer is what I call it sometimes. A lot of paper. Oh, I was like, are you really killing trees? Oh, no. I forgot that's a thing, like, when you, we use too much paper. Yes. And we were also going to have another one of our attorneys, Tara Wright, in here, but she called this morning and said she might be having a baby. Yeah. It wasn't a surprise. Like, we we know she's been pregnant for nine months, so. Right. But. So. Yeah. So I said, that's okay, Tara. You don't need to do the podcast today. <laughs> she was like, oh, good. And I was like, you certainly weren't worried about that, right? <laughs> but yeah, so um, also I feel like we haven't recorded a podcast forever. Um, it's been a minute. Yeah, I, I came down with the the vid, the COVID. Um, my husband really likes to call it the COVID-19, and he like enunciates 19. And I'm like, <laughs> why? It should be COVID-21 now. Right. Yeah, so fully vaccinated, got COVID. Um, I didn't get get sick though, so I mean, just a little bit of a head cold. See, and I had I got the vid like a year and a half ago, so September of 2020, and so that was pre vaccines being available. I think at least not for my category, my age group, and and whatnot. Um, and it was horrible. I was in bed for at least a week, headache fever, you know, all that. I never did lose my taste of smell or, or like taste. I kind of wish I would have. I felt like it would have been a good diet plan maybe, but. Yeah. So I, I actually did lose my taste of smell, taste of smell. See, I said it wrong too. Yeah. Uh, I lost my sense of smell. And then as I was trying to decide if I could taste things, but I definitely was able to taste things. But some of your tasting sense is using your smell sense, right? So if you don't have your sense of smell, it's going to affect some of your taste. But the first day that I was positive, I was like, I don't think I can smell. And so I went and got some apple cider vinegar. I put that in a bowl. And then I put like we had just gotten some hot sauce from Mexico. I put that in a bowl and it was a gringa loca hot sauce. And I filled up this bowl, and so I'm just like smelling it, and I, I couldn't smell either one of them. Then I tried the taste, and I could taste both of them. I was like, okay, I can taste. <laughs> that burned. But then someone made a comment on my Facebook page that you should do all the smelling things to keep your smell buds. Do you have smell buds? It's taste buds. I don't know. Your smelling sensation, like practicing. So then every day I was at home, I was opening all the spice canisters. So I was like, oh, can I taste that cinnamon? I mean, can I smell that cinnamon? Nope. Oh, but that jalapeno seasoning, like you can feel it burn your nostrils. Mm -hmm. So... But I, it's coming back and it's it's not 100%, but now I can smell a little bit. 
I have a I have a friend of mine who she we worked together for a while. She she was a paralegal and she was born without a sense of smell. And so I remember at one point when we were all hanging out, my husband and I and her and her husband and my husband asked her, you know, well, what's that like? And of course, she doesn't know because she's always been that way, right? She was born that way. So now maybe Cole can ask you, what is it like to not be able to smell and then get it back? <laughs> so what does she do about perfume? Like she just trusts that the perfume smells good? You know, I don't know. But I do know that her husband negotiated pretty early on that because they have two kids that she would be changing all of the dirty diapers since she can't smell. Yeah. <laughs> There was a point where I was cleaning out the litter box and I was like, oh, this is great. I can't smell anything. Right. Although that's my least favorite chore is cleaning out the litter box. Probably most people's, I would think. Yeah. So I think, you know, this topic is really interesting when we think about all of our divorce clients that come in and we finalize their divorce. There's still so much that has to happen afterwards. And then usually we're, we just walk down the hall and say, okay, Tasha, here's the file. Have right. at it. Right. And I think I'm, I'm certain, I have never been divorced myself, but I'm certain that once a person gets to a place where the divorce is either final or almost going to be final, there's kind of this sense of relief, right? And maybe a, a sense of relaxation a little bit. But at the same time, there's so many things that we kind of need to consider once that decree is in place so that we make sure that long term, you know, we don't have any issues in the future. Well, and speaking of that, that case you just had recently, speaking of long term, remind me what happened. So it's kind of an interesting situation. So we have spouses who were divorced in sometime in 1991, I want to say. And Part of the decree says that they had a marital home that was going to be sold. And then they were going to split the proceeds. By the way, the decree, I think, was typed on a typewriter. Yes. Yes. It was It was rather an old document. I want to say that... And I know this because probably in 1991 for Christmas, I got a typewriter as a Christmas present. And yes. I was so excited. So I'm, I would have been nine. I'm pretty sure that the case was old enough that... Because now as attorneys, you know, we can go online and we can access just about anybody's case that we want to be nosy and look at, right? But cases that are that old, they don't have the documents scanned in. So then Probably because the typewriter document doesn't scan very well. Right. So then you have to go, you actually have to, you know, like go talk to a person in real life and go to the courthouse IRL and get papers. So oh, I almost asked what IRL means and then I remembered. <laughs> in real life. Tracy, you are way cooler than me. I, I'm certain that you know more acronyms than I do. No, you just used one that I had to, rem- uh-huh. my brain had to work. <laughs> but so... Divorce decree sometime in 1991, I believe, decree says we're going to sell the marital home and split the proceeds. Great. Pretty common provision, you know, in a, in a divorce decree. Fast forward to 2020 and these two individuals remained friends. In fact, so much so that they are still living together in the marital home. That never got sold. That never dun, got dun, sold. Dun. And then one of the spouses passes away. Oh, shit. Right? So we have a situation now where what happens, right? Do we follow the decree from 30 years ago? Technically, since she's no longer a spouse, the surviving person, 
you know, her rights change under the probate code, which is what controls when someone passes away. Well, how is the house titled? Joint tenancy originally, but the decree, I believe, and this is would be one of the questions under the law, right? And we ultimately ended up kind of sort of settling with the court, but one of the questions would be, if the divorce decree is entered, then does that change how the title is on the house? Because then we potentially go from joint tenancy, which means that if one person on the on the title dies, the other person automatically gets it, right? Whoever lives longer wins in a joint tenancy situation. Kind of at life. like Right. Right. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. So, but then you have a situation where once the decree is entered that has some effect on that title, then it potentially changes it to what we call a tenants in common. But the decree in this situation didn't award the house to either person. Correct. It just said, sell it. Right. And then they didn't. Right. And, and then, then 20 years later, the guy died and he's like, well, I don't care. Right. He's not here. I'm dead. And what's interesting, as we all know, I mean, the, the real estate market, I think, at least in the Midwest and even in the United States, generally has just been crazy, right? We so, don't know what's happening in Germany that's with true. the housing market for all of our German listeners. Right. Um, so <laughs> there's been a significant increase in value on this property. So now, potentially there's been a change, right? The determination of equity at the time that they got divorced in 1991 is potentially different in 2020, right? And the so we represented the living person, person the, yes. the ex-wife. Right. Who's and, living in the house. Right. And now the estate says, well, what are we supposed to do? How and the do estate we... is their children. Correct. Their joint children. Right. And, you know, sometimes you would think maybe people could get along and, and kind of figure this out. But sometimes people don't. People have estranged relationships or... Thus the reason we have a job. Right. Right. And so trying to figure, you know, the the estate's position was, well, the house was supposed to be sold in 1991, and so the share of the living person should be determined based on the 1991 decree. And of course, our position was, the decree doesn't say that. The decree says, when we sell it, we get half. And it was typed on a typewriter, so mm. it's like legit. It's like, yes, no, no whiteout on that. <laughs> Oh, nope. yeah, because they would have had to use my <laughs> No delete button, no control X or control Z, none of that. So and it brings up this interesting question because, you know, once you have a decree, right, then you kind of have to look at it and what are the specific terms that you need to be following? It's a court order, right? Correct. So, we, so one of the things that we always talk about in a divorce situation is we need to follow the decree, to a T. And so it either needs to be written really clear too, so that everyone knows exactly what they need to do so that they can't either be held in contempt or 30 years later, someone dies and you didn't sell the house that you're supposed to sell. Right. So what right. happened in that case? Um, ultimately, the the parties were able to kind of come to a, a resolution, I think, with the help of the judge, you know, kind of... I'm going to stop you here. This is Tara or Tasha being um, totally <laughs> humble. She went in to the judge and said, judge, listen, this is what the case law and the statute say. And I think I win. And then the judge said, yeah, actually, you're right. Uh, Miss opposing counsel, you need to go tell your client they're going to lose this trial. And then they all marched out in the hallway 
And they came to an agreement because you went into the judge and stated that we are in the right position. Yes, I, I, I do think that the law was very much on our side in, in that situation. Um, but at the same time, I will say there was enough of a question for the other side to be able to make an argument. And I think part of what we at Hightower Ref Law really try to do is to, as much as we can, let's avoid those gray areas. Let's avoid those questions. Let's have a good decree that covers all the issues and then let's follow it. Right. But if we get that moment where we can like walk right. out of the chambers and do the little like secret dance in your mind <laughs> and be like, mm-hmm, I just won. That's fun, too. So ultimately, we were able to come to a solution in terms of the amount of money that was going to be split using the sale price. And because then, the house was getting sold. Correct. Yeah. Right. There was not an argument about that. Everybody wanted to sell the house. It was really a question of how are we going to split the dollars. And then also, you know, talking about when people were going to, because not only was the, one of the children was also still living in the house. And so talking about when people were going to be moving out and also talking about who's going to pay for updates to the house. Because a lot of times when you put a house on the market, you got to do certain things. Well, who's going to be paying for that? And how much does it cost? And, you know, all there's so many questions that came up because of this sort of lag, right? And then you have some people who are wanting to say, well, this, you know, the other owner, the guy who's dead, he told me this and this and this. Well, that's not admissible. If it's not in writing, right, we have to follow what's on the paper. The, the Nebraska case law is very clear that decrees are interpreted black letter. What does the decree say? And nothing outside of it is going to be used to interpret it. You sound like the bar exam right now. I, I do. But it is, it's always the terms of the four corners of the decree or the order. Right. And it's like, only what's within the four corners. Don't go outside that box of paper. Right. Right. But I think this um, brings up a really good point, too, that we oftentimes have to help our clients with non-legally related things like, when are you going to move out? You need to pack your stuff up. Put it in the garage so you can show the house. And we're, you know, often helping with logistics. And we have a case right now in our in our firm that everything is settled except for who's going to get the stuff in the house. And it's like down to the who's getting the stuff in the garage on the shelves and who's getting the stuff in the shelves in the basement. And I often think about these things like in my own house, like I feel like I have a lot of shit, crap, you know, in, in my house. And like if you have to go down to the T on those things and you really want some Christmas decorations, but not all of them, are you're unboxing some things. Um, and so sometimes we have to literally help our clients with the logistics of those things. Like, OK, on Tuesday, he's going to come over and go through and take what he wants. And then on Wednesday, you're going to say yes or no to those things. And if there's a disagreement, we'll figure it out. Right. And those are the things sometimes that people, unfortunately, are willing to pay their attorney to help them with. Well, Tracy, I've been to your house and you're like uber organized. So I feel like yours would be really Have you seen the basement shelves? Yeah, you have like Tupperwares and everything's like very organized. I've seen your closet. It's like every shoe has a box. That's impressive. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, my husband wouldn't want any of my shoes. Well, that's true. Well, you don't know. I don't think he wants any Christmas decorations (laughs) either. We're also not getting divorced, so it's okay. Well, that's good. (laughs) Right? Maybe that's that's the lead of the story. But I do, okay, so on that point, you know, when we talk about divorce, 
and estate planning, the first thing is, right, we're referencing the decree. We're going to follow what the decree says. So in 1991, you need to sell the house so that 30 years later, your kids and your ex-wife slash friend aren't fighting over the proceeds. But also some of our advice, the really strong advice is once your decree is final, you really need to talk with your estate planning attorney and either do a will now or an estate plan or update it. Correct. And and a lot of that, it not only encompasses talking about a will, but also some of your what we call pay on death or transfer on death assets like life insurance or money market accounts, brokerage accounts, 401k, you know, 403b, you know, all of those types of accounts, a lot of times are going to have beneficiaries on them. And so just making it very clear for those companies that hold your, your money that if something happens to me, this is where it's supposed to go. And a lot of times in situations with divorce clients where they have either minor children or adult children, then... <laughs> yes, that was fun. I Was that Star Wars? No. Completely different video game. Oh, video game. Yeah, I wouldn't know. Me either. So in cases where we have either minor children or adult children, right, then we're talking about do we need a trust to protect the money for young kids? Or if we have adult children thinking about, okay, if the parent remarries, how do we protect inheritance of adult children when we have either a new spouse or a new significant other coming into the picture. Right. And sometimes a new significant other doesn't become a spouse. Correct. Right. And and that that person who has the adult children may still want to protect that new significant other in some assets or ways, or maybe they buy a house together. Um, but they may want that person to be able to still live in that house and not necessarily have it inherited to their adult children. Right. But they want some things inherited for their adult children. And that's where, and sometimes I think it's kind of thought of as a dirty word or a dirty phrase, but... Ooh, and that, tell me. Ooh. Um, that's, I don't think it's going to be very dirty. What's the dirty it, word? It's not. Um, <laughs> that's where I kind of consider prenuptial agreements a oh. very effective planning tool. So dirty. <laughs> Yes, before you get remarried. So, right. If you have a situation where you have a second marriage, but we need to be maybe protecting assets for the children from the first marriage, you know, by having a prenuptial agreement, it really opens a lot more doors than if you don't have one. We're limited in some ways on our estate planning unless the new spouse is willing to waive things. And then you have to have that difficult conversation. You know, sometimes it's hard, sometimes not. But I had a case once where we had a husband and wife who were divorced and the husband has a new significant other, long-time relationship. You know, I don't know that they will be getting married, but in that situation, he wanted to be able to make sure that the significant other had some protections, but still wanted to be able to make sure that his his assets ultimately went to his kids. And so in that scenario, we thought about, okay, well, maybe we we predetermine almost like a lease, the terms that the significant other could um, be under in order to stay in the house. And so then in this paper, he's telling his kids, this is what I expect and this is what my wishes are, that my significant other can have the house and be there and 
for a set amount of time or, you know, if she wants to leave early and this, that's what this would look like. So then that way, if he's gone, his kids know this is what dad wanted and we want to honor that. But we also know that we're protected because she's not getting everything. She's getting this finite amount of stuff and we're getting this other stuff. Right. Right. And they probably don't want the Christmas decorations. She can have them. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it depends. <clears throat> so changing beneficiaries is also really important after the decree is entered. And what happens if someone doesn't change their, let's say, life insurance beneficiary and they die and their life insurance beneficiary still has their ex-spouse from 10 years ago listed? So it used to be that if you didn't change it, then the ex-spouse got it. Because the life insurance company doesn't have to comply with any probate, right? It They get a death certificate or notification of death and they're just supposed to pay out the beneficiary, right? Correct. They're typically going to follow whatever information is in their file in terms of who is named as the beneficiary with a few exceptions. I had a case once where it was a super unfortunate situation where a husband and wife were in the process of divorce and then the husband, um, the case came to us as a divorce case and then the husband passed away before he died. But he had tried to change his some of his beneficiaries on, for example, his retirement account to somebody other than his spouse. In that case, because they weren't divorced, under federal statute, your spouse has to be your beneficiary unless they waive it, which is why if you don't have a prenuptial agreement, right, kind of coming full circle there, um, it can affect how beneficiaries are paid out. And so the life insurance company had notified me that they were going to pay this money to a trust. And I said, well, legally, you cannot. Is this like our favorite client? Yes. Oh, Um, I can't wait. I'm not going to tell the ending. Keep going. I said, you cannot pay this significant amount of money to this trust because under federal ERISA statutes, my client did not waive the money. So she gets to have it. And he said, uh... I need to check my file and I'll call you back. And then he called me back the next day and he said, well, by golly, you're right. And I said, I know. <laughs> and then again, you were like, <laughs> so I got to keep well, the money. Well, but the ending, which you kind of already said, they, this guy filed for divorce and he was terminally ill and she was our client, the wife, and he was going through all these changes in his beneficiaries changing things around and then he died during the divorce before the divorce finalized and so she got everything and he even filed for he even died before the 60 days uh which is called the 60 day cooling off period passed so they couldn't even finalize the divorce until the 60 days had passed after he filed right and i think we didn't there wasn't even a decree in place no right no yeah he died before before the divorce could even be finalized and so our client got everything and so if it was a situation where someone passed away post decree so the decree is already entered then there is a statute in nebraska now it's fairly recent within the last i want to say maybe four years or so that the statute says and there's this big long definition of what a testamentary document is, right? But basically like a life insurance beneficiary or something like that, a paper that says so-and-so gets the money. If they're divorced from that person, then this statute cancels that beneficiary designation. But my position, and 
you know, I've always been kind of a belt and suspenders kind of person, right? So do you wear suspenders? Ever? I, I do not. We should get you some. <laughs> Maybe for Halloween, I could wear them. <laughs> what would you be? I don't know. You could just be the belt and suspender person, right? Yes, I like it. <laughs> um, so, you know, the decree is entered. Just make the changes. That way there's no question. There's no potential that the money would go somewhere that you most likely do not want it to go. I think sometimes, though, like as we're talking about all these things that we recommend happen after the divorce is entered, we also recognize that our client has gone through this pretty potentially traumatic experience of this divorce. By the time they get the decree, the final order, they literally maybe can't process any more changes and paperwork and documentation. And I think that's probably... I don't know, 40% of our clients, so a big chunk. Um, The other 60% were really trying to rein in and say, like, you know, let us help you with the rest of this stuff, too, so you can have this as clean of a slate as possible going forward. And the other 40%, you know, we may reach out to them a year later and say, okay, are you ready now? And I do think that a lot of people get into a better mind space, you know, as more time passes. But for some people, the divorce can be really traumatic because they didn't want it, for example. Or, you know, now their financial situation is very different. Their lifestyle is different. Um, and maybe they also just can't afford to do any more legal work, too. So we're doing our best to try and, you know, make sure if there's priority things, like what are the things that they need to do based on their situation to to get everything in place. So I, I also remember, you know, speaking of death, before divorce is finalized, I had a case one time where our client was making a lot of comments that she thought her husband was potentially poisoning her. And, you know, it wasn't relevant to the divorce because they had no kids and they were living separate. And so I kind of kept saying to her, like, well, don't eat or drink anything he gives you, right? Like, (laughs) then there shouldn't be an issue. And before the divorce was finalized, she died. And it was like un- unknown how she died and questioned. And I never really got any more information about the cause of death. But I always wondered, like, did he actually poison her? And then I remember, it must have been three or five years after she died, I got a call from her husband. He was her husband when she died because the divorce wasn't final. And he said, well, I want her whole file. And I said, no. You know, she still is a past client that her file is still confidential. And by all means, you can't have it. Um, I don't know. And I I always wonder, like, what did he want in the file? There wasn't really anything. Um, And maybe there was some notes, you know, that I had written down that she claimed to have poisoned him or other way. She claimed he had poisoned her. Um, But obviously, he never got the file and never will. But I was not. At the firm, I don't think, when this case was happening. No. And it must have been about five years ago. I feel like this could totally be like one of those Netflix documentaries that they do. Like there was one about a crazy murder that happened in Council Bluffs, which is where I live. And it was like, and right, Council Bluffs is not famous for anything really. I was going to say, you said that a little like. You were concerned people are going to judge you, and I just left it. Uh, more like people were going to come try to find me, <laughs> but I, I, but then I'm oh. like, I'm not that interesting, so... I was also going to remind our listeners that some people call it Council Tucky. They do. They do. Um, but it's it's a fairly small, I mean, maybe medium size. I don't know what people consider small town, but um, 
it's not otherwise noteworthy, I guess. And now all of a sudden we have this like it's like three or four episodes, I think, about this really unfortunate situation where this lady like killed this man's girlfriend and then pretended to be her. Is it on Netflix now? I think so. Netflix or or not Hulu. I don't know. One of those streaming. I'll have to f- figure it out and maybe we can post it. But it, it just the like you can't make it up. This woman and I mean, clearly she has mental problems, but she befriended this man and liked him. And then he started dating somebody else. So she murders her and then pretends to be her and text message him. Right. And crazy. I think I recall, did, did it even go to trial and everything? Well, they didn't arrest her for like five years. And what's crazy is if she would have stopped pretending to be the dead lady, they never would have caught her. Was, she would have got away with it. Was this the case that they realized she wasn't the dead lady because the dead lady had a certain tattoo yes. that she didn't have? It was on her foot. Dumbass, go get the same tattoo. <laughs> yes. Yes. And she's still in jail. At least when I watched the video, the the documentary or whatever she still claims she's innocent even though like she had pictures of this woman's foot in her trunk of her car yes yes and that's where the tattoo was yes yes on the severed foot in and, her car. and this poor guy who's just I mean he's like a mechanic just like trying to you know just working hard in life and then he has this woman who comes in and just turns everything upside down and and his girlfriend died in the process and just crazy crazy story so that's now everybody will know what council, council bluffs is that's what council tucky is all about not really though we don't we don't go around murdering people a lot <laughs> so speaking of all the death things and divorce things the death of the marriage is you know i think the the really important things to take away are really Think about your estate plan after your divorce is final. And if you need time to take a rest from the legalities of your divorce, do that. But shortly after, you know, that's finalized, you really need to sit down and think about your estate plan because it's going to look very different than what you had before. And if you never had one before, obviously your estate plan is is really necessary um, in new, you know, like new relationships and things. Oh, we're being shown what the... Yes, series is that that is it what is, is it? it does it have a name true conviction series so uh go watch the true conviction series about the woman who plays the dead girlfriend right with technology like spoofs her phone i mean that's like high level stuff right gps yes yes well, and think, and in terms of your estate plan looking different, I mean, just to mention too, sometimes when people, you know, obviously you get you get married, you you would have a joint plan, like for example, a joint trust. So if you're then dismantling that, making sure that we don't still have assets in a joint trust with an ex spouse, right? That could also complicate things. So I think you know, in terms of the takeaways, Tracy's right. You know, just making sure once you have that decree, you're following it and you're making those changes so that we have a clear path moving forward. And I think also our final suggestion, this is coming slightly biasly from lawyers, but don't do it on your own. You know, especially after a divorce, you're going to have some unique, interesting things that you need to think through with an experienced attorney. So call your attorney. If you're in Omaha, Hightower Reflock can help you. Or Council Bluffs. None of us are licensed in Germany, though, so... Um, we could we could probably find a referral for you there. So, 
Thanks for listening. Guten Tag. All that. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to the Lady Lawyer League podcast. And be sure to like and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. If you would like to learn more about our firm, Hightower Ref Law, please visit our website at hrlawomaha.com. We'll see you next week.